Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Hope you're healthy and safe out there, and welcome to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Yes, and this week we're going to talk about Quirky Circuits by Plaid Hat Games. Yeah, this is one I've actually had for a while, and Peter and I played a while back, and we just never got around to covering it and never got around to doing it on the YouTube channel either. So we're fixing all of that. I think uh, my videos for the game will be up probably the day after this podcast airs. So uh, yeah, we're going to get into some cooperative programming. We've done that pretty recently with Wonder Woman. Yeah, it's funny because there are a lot of games that we didn't get to just because, as we know, so many games have been released over the last few years. So what this quarantine is allowing us to do is go back to some of those old games. I mean, let's be honest, we haven't even covered Pandemic yet. And I'm not sure that we will at this point, but I'm just saying we haven't even covered Pandemic. So there are lots of games still to cover. So don't worry about that. Even if, you know, distribution shut down and manufacturing shut down, we're still going strong. No, absolutely. And since we just had a design discussion on programming games, we're not going to do that again. Instead, we're going to talk about content and varied play modes being in games. Quirky Circuit somewhat fits that bill, but we'll also talk about some other cooperative games that maybe even do it more so. But before we get to that, we'd like to thank some of our Patreon patrons. And we've had a lot of new ones since we added the new rewards. So I'm really glad people are seeing a lot of value in the bonuses we're giving. Uh, early access to videos, getting to vote on games we cover, even playing with us on Tabletop Simulator. Uh, we had a great game of Too Many Bones last month. But this week I want to thank three, and these are all new members as of May. We have Peter Siogren. Sorry if I got your last name wrong. He's a co-op lover. Ken Campbell, a co-op fan, and Oleg Seveliev, a co-op lover. So thank you to the three of you. Thank you to all of our patrons, both old and new, especially in such trying economic times for so many people. We appreciate that you feel that our content is something you want to contribute to. And if any of you want to contribute but don't have the means right now, no worries. We know you love us anyway. Uh, feel free to go and do a review on iTunes or anything else. Or just join us on our Slack and have a conversation. Uh, we know everyone's uh, just surviving the best they can. And we appreciate everyone and hope you are safe and having some fun with board games, even in these difficult times. Well said. All right. So without further ado, let's get into Quirky Circuits. I guess I'm going to cover the theme for this one, which is... Yes, yeah, such as it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which is, uh, there's not much to say about it. You're crazy robots that are getting programmed by some people that don't really know what they're doing, apparently. And so you are making these robots spin around, do crazy things. There is a Roomba, is the first one. If you don't know what a Roomba is, it's like a vacuum cleaner that kind of runs around and vacuums on its own. That one's got a cat sitting on top of it. Then there is a electronic bee that flies around gathering things from the board. There is also a dog that runs around digging up bones. And there is a robot sushi chef that's working on some kind of a crazy assembly line. So those are what you are controlling, but you're doing it through programming. And Mike will tell you a little bit more about that. Yeah, so this is uh, for two to four players, fully cooperative. And each of the robots has a unique deck of programming cards. It'll have things like turn left, turn right, go straight one space, go straight two spaces. And they have a little board that illustrates the exact distribution of the cards. So each player will receive either four or five cards, depending on player count. And the players all play to a single row of programming cards. So I can play the first card. Peter can play the second and the third. Uh, somebody else can play the fourth. But you're all playing in the row together. And the restrictions are each of you has to play at least one card and you have to play at least a total of five cards, but you can play through your entire hands if you want to. And after everyone is finished playing, you flip over all the cards, you resolve them in order, see what wacky hijinks ensued. I will note that the cards have the type of card they are on the back, so I can tell that you're turning the robot, I just might not know which way you are making it turn. And uh, then the battery token ticks down one, if that gets to zero you lose. And you're basically racing, you refill your hands, you're racing to try to complete whatever your robot's objective is before your battery is out. And I guess the humans that own you throw you in the trash. That's kind of a dark interpretation of this, right? I mean, sure. It's like Wally all over again. Oh. <laughs> but one of the key things is that you're actually all controlling the same robot. So yes, each robot has its own unique deck, 
But we're all controlling that Roomba on round one. And so that Roomba has a unique deck, but we're all getting cards from that deck that we're playing together in one line. And I think that's the thing that makes it unique. All right, so we're going to get to our review. If you have not listened before, thank you so much for being here. Uh, We're going to cover the five elements or design decisions in the game that we think are most important. We're going to each start with our number five, the least important of the five, and work our way to the number one, the thing that stands out most about the game, whether it's a positive or a negative. Uh, So, Peter, you want to take it away with your number five? Sure, and my list is, is interesting because I had a real hard time coming up with five. I came up with one and two pretty easily, and I think we'll at least be close on those two. But three through five, I really had a hard time coming up with different stuff. Now, I think my number two specifically is probably going to be like three of the different things on your list. So uh, my, my first couple will be pretty quick, but when it comes to number two, I'm going to take up all my time for the podcast. But with that being said, my number five is the artwork, the theme and the components. So as with a lot of Plaid Hat games, I think they do a great job with artwork. They do a really good job with cute themes as well. You know, they could have just had the Roomba there, but no, of course they got the cat on top of the Roomba. So it makes for cool miniatures. The miniatures themselves can hold components. Well, if they work properly anyway, I know (laughs) sometimes they do and sometimes they don't hold as well as you'd like them to, but you know, at least... The concept is there. And it's got a lot of neat things with the theme artwork and components. So that is my number five. I love how this all just kind of came together. Yeah, and it's my number five, too. I I kind of, the opposite of you, I sort of had six or seven things I wanted to talk about. So I kind of cheated and put two into this number five. So mine's also the components, uh, but also the storybook, which is, hey, part of the components, uh, so if you haven't seen the game, it is uh, it does use a spiral-bound book, the same as uh, Aftermath and Stuff Fables and Comanauts, all the games, uh, some of them now owned by Asmodee or Z-Man, the, some of the games that were in the storybook line. You got the same thing here, so it really makes the game a breeze to play. You've got all the special rules for your scenario on the left and the board you're playing on on the right of the book, and it shows you exactly where to set things up. That's great. Like Peter said, the tokens are nice, the artwork is lovely, the miniatures are adorable. Now, this is a little bit of a mix for me. If your copy is like mine, and based on browsing the threads on BoardGameGeek, I think most of them are. I think this is just kind of how the quality control came out. Uh, Number one, the B miniature. He has a little flying base, and the hole that that base is supposed to go into is too small. And if you try to push the flying base in and force it, it will snap in half. And it seemed to have happened, based on a thread on BGG, to a ton of people. So uh, first tip, do a little drilling with like a drill bit if you have one, or a small screwdriver. Make that hole a little bit bigger before you put the flying base in. And the second thing, as Peter noted, they do not hold the tokens. None of the none of the miniatures held the tokens correctly. They're all like two clothes. They're supposed to have little claws and mouths that hold the tokens. They don't. But if you check my playthrough, which again should be up a day or two after this podcast, I literally did a little uh, Q&A on how to fix them. Uh, this is a trial and error I was spending like an hour on last night, Peter. Uh, if you do the hot, cold water trick where you put them in almost boiling water and then fix them and then put them in cold water, that works great. But here's the key thing. A nickel is the perfect size. If you put a nickel in their claw and then use the cold water, if you put a nickel in their mouth and then use the cold water, they'll fit the tokens no problem. So there you go. Your public service <laughs> for this episode. Uh, you can fix the miniatures, but it did bring the pro down a bit for me in my number five in the components that uh, they didn't have perfect quality control on these beautiful miniatures. Yeah, and that may be just a function of like being in the box too long or whatever else. You never know what kind of thing is going to lead to this. I mean, it's so funny because when you use the hot-cold water trick, put it in hot water, it goes back to its normal shape, and then you put it in cold water and it freezes it in that shape. Well, it's funny because a lot of times when it goes back to its normal shape, it's in the right shape. And so it's not necessarily their fault, I don't think. I just... I don't know what happens with these things. Well, no, no, no. So, so, so let me clarify. When I put it in the hot water, it closed even more. Clearly, oh. it was like sculpted or something where it was impossible to get anything in. And then while it was malleable, I shoved a nickel in the gap and then used the cold water. So I had to create the correct space. That's why it took so much trial and error. I kept on trying different objects to uh, get the spacing right to hold the tokens. So the watermelon didn't work, huh? Not at all. <laughs> All right, so my number four is very similar. It is the storybook element to it, but I want to take a little bit different spin on it. So yes, it uses a storybook like Aftermath, which we just talked about two weeks ago, 
But here, the simplicity of the rules works for me. Yeah. And so I had straightforward rules slash storybook here. And I didn't have rules questions. There was no ambiguities. I didn't have to go look anywhere. Everything was very straightforward and very clear. They think they did a very good job with a condensed set of rules here. And I think it's just the complexity of the game. You know, this is a more straightforward game. And you need that when you have... Not real-time elements, but when you have hidden elements and, like, timing matters, you almost need a straightforward set of rules for a game like this, and I think it's perfect for this kind of storybook game. Yeah, and it is interesting to compare it to Aftermath because they are both such lean rulebooks. Like, even though this one is a very simple game, they could have definitely gotten away with another page or two of, like, examples and illustrations and things, but it's super bare-bones. But you're right, it totally works here because the basics are very clear, and the storybook explains the extra stuff you need to know in, in no time. So it's definitely a win here. All right, so my number four, I'm going to talk about the programming as a bigger concept later. And I'm sure you will too, Peter. But my number four is focusing on specifically something I didn't mention in the rules overview, which is the yellow programming cards. And I love this. Big pro for me. So uh, not all scenarios use them. Usually they're like not in the easier scenarios for each robot. There's four robots you can control, but they're in the later scenarios. And how it works is they will be just like other programming cards, like force you to turn left, force you to move forward. But the key thing is for each player, remember players can play in whatever order they want, the first cards I have to play are my yellow cards. So Peter can play his whole hand if he wants to, but before I can play one or more cards, I have to play my yellow card. So it kind of like puts a little wrench in programming, but again, you know what the possible distribution of those yellow cards are, so you can kind of figure out and make an uh, educated guess on why they played it and what it might be and work around it. So I love that. Kind of like, uh, you know, Mechs versus Minions, where like the damage cards kind of force a little weird gap into your programming. You have to figure out how to deal with it. I think it's a really clever mechanic here, uh, something that I haven't seen done quite the same way, sort of the forced play of it, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, my number three is the yellow cards. So What the heck, dude? <laughs> <laughs> yep, I, I uh, put yellow cards exactly. So the interesting thing is, because everyone has to play at least one card, if you get a yellow card, you're forced to play it. Now, I guess you could get two yellow cards and only play one of them, but typically you want to get them out of your hand so you're not forced into plays for the next round also. So yeah, no, I think the yellow cards are very unique. I think they do. It reminded me a little bit of Bonanza. So in Bonanza, you got your cards and they were given to you in a certain order and you weren't allowed to change the order of them. And because oh, of that... Oh, yes. I got you now. Yeah, it, it kind of forced you into weird plays. It forced you into trading things where maybe you didn't want to. And here, I think it forces you into doing some creative things. Because to be honest, if you could just program however you wanted and the missions where you could, I found it a lot easier because, I mean, it's pretty obvious what you need to do. And... My options are to turn right or left, and left turns me into a wall, and right turns me into a gap. Most times, people are going to be turning right. So it adds a little mystery to it. It adds a little bit of randomness to it. And so I think it does what it sets out to do really well. So good call on number four. It's a little higher on my list at number three. All right, so my number three, this is kind of a weird one because it's hard to separate it from something later on my list, but it also does kind of stand out for me. And that is uh, the limited communication in the game, but limited communication with some known information. And for me, this is a pro. If you've heard uh, our design discussion on limited communication, you know that I really enjoy games like this, but it also comes with a warning that you might hate it, especially with kind of more chaotic games like this, where you could get angry at somebody because of failure of communication. But you cannot talk about what's in your hand. You cannot share strategy advice. Me and my wife in the playthrough kind of broke those rules. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do to enjoy a game. But, again, you can see the distribution of the cards. You can see the types of cards that your uh, partners are playing. You can see the types of cards they're not playing. So if you see they're not playing that straight card, and you're like, oh my god, a straight is totally what we need here. You might have some information based on that, if you can assume that they know what's going on. So uh, I, I love it. I think it's a lot of fun. I think it adds to like the chaos that and the goofiness that, for me, is kind of key to programming being enjoyable. But for some people, it might be a huge source of frustration. Yeah, this isn't on my list, but it'll definitely be in my final thoughts. So I'm going to leave that for later. So my number two is kind of like everything combined probably it's probably like three of your points <laughs> but my number two i called it the card line 
So it's this programming line, exactly what you're talking about. It's hidden information. It's programming. It's very unique. It's what makes this game, in my mind, stand out. I have one thing ahead of it, but it is the thing that is unique about this game and most unique about this game. Usually you're not programming to the same spot. And to be honest, I don't know if a game like The Mind didn't come out if something like this would have ever been thought of because it really is very much in a programming way, very much like the mind where you have to play the cards in the correct order in order for you to be successful for the round and for the individual mission you're doing. And so it's all of it put together. It's the programming, it's the timing, it's the having to play the yellow cards. It's kind of the thing for me that makes this game stand out. Yep, I'll get to that in a little bit. But my number two, maybe it's your number one, maybe you'll have something else, is the variety going right into what our design discussion will focus on. And it's not just variety in scenarios, and there is nice variety in that. Like the basic five scenarios with a cat on a Roomba. Uh, first, you're just trying to get pick up dust. Then you're trying to pick up dust, but not knock over uh, vases. Then you're trying to pick up dust, not knock over vases, and get under chairs. And then you got to knock down boxes to get to the dust that's on the boxes. And each of like the different robot types adds in that variety and increasing challenges that go along. But the variety between the robots is awesome. Like, yes, the... Uh, you know, the, the, the bee that is moving pollen around and the dog and the cat on a Roomba, those three robots all have basic movement. The uh, robot that is doing sushi is way different, but they each have their own unique flair. Like the dog can do these leaps and has to leap up uh, steep embankments. And the, uh, the bee has this momentum where whichever direction you were traveling in, it'll push you that way again. So you got to kind of plan ahead better. And then the sushi robot is insane. And then they have these challenge scenarios at the end where there's like cats running around stealing the stuff you're trying to pick up. It's just ridiculous. It's crazy. I love uh, the new things I can try each time I play. Now, it does bring up that old problem of programming games that we talked about back in our design discussion, like Space Alert. Where, you know, the game might be better if you have a consistent group because the challenges get so tough that you can't really have any chance of ever playing them. And if you just keep on playing the same Roomba missions, you might get bored. But besides that, I love how crazy and wacky and fun the variety in the gameplay gets. Yep, and that's my number one. So I had a feeling our number one and two were going to be the same. I just yeah. didn't know what you were going to do for your lower ones. And apparently we had the yellow cards the same, too. I mean, we had almost the same list. It's kind of like we have different thoughts on it, but I'm, I was we have not done that in a while and we haven't played this one together in a long time. So I'm kind of surprised that happened. Well, we played it one night and I'll tell that story in our final thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think that's important to have. <laughs> but um, but yes, my number one is the unique maps and challenges. And I agree with everything Mike said. I, I think it is key to this game because I think it's the kind of game where because the actions are so simple that you might get bored with it if it didn't have all these unique challenges. And I like that the difficulty scales and you can kind of pick where you're comfortable going to and limit yourself and, and limit where you go from there. So maybe you're getting frustrated with the B missions. Well, move on to the next one, move on to the dog or move to the sushi shaft or go back and do the Roomba one. I like the fact that there are different difficulty levels and each one scales up from something that starts very simple and gets more and more complex. And then once you've hit your level of complexity with the group you're at, you could just skip to a new one and it starts to be easier again right from the beginning. Although different, easier. So I think the variety is definitely necessary for this game. And again, I'm going to go back to my number four point. I think they do it very well here with the adventure book where the basic rules are always the same. You just need to know the intricacies of that map, and that builds from map to map. So as you go along, if you're doing them in order for that specific robot, you're going to know all the basics as you're going along, and so they just stack complexity on top of that. So I think it's really well done here. I, I love how not only are the maps and the robots unique, but it's also very simple at the same time. Well, yeah, and I think a lot of that comes from the unique decks, you know, because you don't have to like learn a ton or remember a bunch of special rules. You just have a new set of cards and that robot behaves differently. You don't have to worry about it. You know, it's it's kind of like going way back to, you know, Street Masters versus some of the later Blacklist games. 
Street Masters left every card in play and had all these effects to remember, whereas later games or something like Cthulhu Death May Die is almost always built upon one-time events. Yep. You know, in this one, you don't have to remember a ton of rules. You just have individual cards. You play them, and they say what they do, and you're done. And the graphic design, I mean, I guess this goes back to our number five with the artwork. The graphic design is very clear. If you're turning left, it's like a left arrow, you know, you know, a curling left arrow. If you're turning right, it's a curling right arrow. You know, if you're going straight once, it's one arrow forward. If you're going straight twice, it's two arrows forward. So, I mean, the graphic design is very clean and simple to understand. And so I, I think because of that, you can play with people of different ages as well. No, absolutely. Like my son enjoys this. Now, of course, and I would recommend this for anybody we, we started out with you know, face-up cards, and, and they even say that in the rules, if you're playing with kids, just play with face-up cards and kind of enjoy yourself and to solve the puzzle. But I should get to my number one, and that is uh, the puzzle of the programming. Peter already said a lot of it great. I just want to add uh, two things. First of all, I think they did a great job of adding in little elements that make the puzzle more interesting than it would be otherwise. To give you one example, the starting cat on a Roomba robot, whenever they run into something, they turn left. And almost all their turn cards are right turns. And it's such a simple little thing that they didn't have to do. A lesser programming game would have just said, here's an equal number of right and left turns. If you hit something, you stop. But this game opens up so many fun, puzzly elements when you don't have the right turns in your deck. And you got to figure out, even if you knew what all the cards were, you still have to figure out the fun puzzle of how do I hit my head into things enough to turn the right way. And, you know, I guess Roombas do that, right? They, like, run into things and then turn. But whatever. It's awesome. It works really well. And I just like the clever kind of programming things they did that. The other thing I love about the programming that Peter didn't already touch on is the push-your-luck aspect. So your battery is running down, but not only that, the battery has uh, colors on its track. And the idea is, like, if you win while you're in green, then you want a green victory and then a yellow and then a red. So you want to get, like, a better win and not just win. And the way to do that is to play more cards. You know, like, yes, it's safer and you'll have more knowledge if you stop every time you've played five cards and reevaluate where the heck you are. But... If you can gel correctly and read each other's minds the right way, you can play 10 cards. You can play 15 cards, you know, in a four-player game and just rip the scenario apart because you, you know, just figured out how each other were thinking so well. So I love that aspect that, you know, it encourages you actively to program more than you should, to uh, look into the future more than you might want to. But if you can do it well, you get rewarded. Yeah, no, those are really good points. And, you know, something, it's been a little while since I played this one. So things I didn't really think about, but you're absolutely right. There is definitely that mind synergy going on, you know, where if you're in sync, you will do really well in this game. And if you're not in sync, it could get to the point where you're just spinning in a corner and getting frustrated. But <laughs> yes, but that special aspect is cool too. You're right. Every single robot has a different way it reacts to when it runs into things or when it deals with challenges. So it's not just card play that matters. It's what happens when bad stuff happens. Or like you said, with that B, they've got that momentum and it's, it's working with that as well. So yeah, no, those are some really good points and some things I didn't initially think about. But no, I think they really add to the puzzle and take something that's very simple. You know, you're just playing cards with these symbols on them. And make it even more deep and complex. All right, so let me jump into my final thoughts first, because I think Peter's going to have a little bit more grounding. But uh, this is up there fighting for my number one programming game of all time spot. I'm not even saying a cooperative programming game. I'm just saying programming game of all time. I think this game is super fun. I love playing it with gamers, because if you go to those advanced scenarios, it is hard as heck, and heavy gamers, well, I don't know if heavy gamers will enjoy it, but, you know, strategic gamers can have fun. My wife likes it. My son enjoys it. Like, it's very uh, accessible in terms of what groups I want to play it with. But beyond that, it is just so much fun, and I love the variety, and the miniatures are awesome, especially now that I've fixed them so they can actually do what they're supposed to do. It's just, uh, it's a joy to play, it's a joy to see. It takes like 10 seconds to set up, you don't have to pour through the rule book. you just open the, uh, you know, the uh, scenario book and go. And yeah, I just think this game is awesome. But, but, it has such a potential for frustration this is not going to be some people's game. Some people don't like programming. Some people don't like limited communication. Some people don't like chaos. Uh, those are things that I enjoy, all three of them. So this game is in a way made for me. And again, there's like the little bit of quality control thing for the miniatures that might be annoying. If you use my fixes, you should be fine. But, you know, it might be annoying that you have to fix it. But 
I, I think this game is phenomenal. And I don't think it got very much attention at all. Like, I think it just went by and, like, blipped and it was gone. And I, I feel really sad about that because I think this is such a cool design and I wish it got more attention. But anyway, Peter, uh, you talk about uh, some of the other side of things. Yes, yeah, more grounded is an interesting way of putting it. So I love the mind. I love that syncing with the people at your table and playing cards, not knowing what the other people have and having to like get on the same page and do things. And as you've seen with my list, I think they did some great things with the design here. Like all of my things were pretty much positive, but I have not had one good experience with this game. I have literally, you you talk about frustration. I have literally had frustration. I think that first night that we played this game, you, me, and Jerry, Jerry and I almost came to blows that night. I mean, literally, Jerry had stopped talking at one point and refused to talk to me for the rest of the night. And we weren't even drinking that night. It wasn't even like there was alcohol involved. We were so frustrated with each other's like misplays or whatever else. And it's interesting. And I've had the same experience with my kids. I brought it to my relative's house. You know, and we've had great times with the mine and other games. And just not one group have I brought this to. And maybe the problem is me. I mean, there's certainly that possibility, right? <laughs> I'm never going to throw that out because... I mean, you've obviously had great experiences every time you played. So it might be the teacher needs to be, maybe you need to go in with a certain mindset as well. And I haven't, and I didn't play with the cards face up. So I've always started with the cards face down and maybe it's smarter to play with the cards face up at first because, I mean, it's a very simple programming game. If you play with the cards face up, it's like, there's not a lot to it. And actually I did that later with the kids after we got frustrated at the beginning, we did start playing with them face up for a while and it did go over smoother. But it's just, I don't know. At that point, it's not, there's not really much to it. It's just a programming game where you're working together at that point um, and hoping you have the right cards. So, I don't know. I have had the opposite reaction to this game. It was a very frustrating game for me. I don't know. I, well, I do, because I've thought about this a lot. Like, what is the difference between this and the mind for me? Because the mind has the same no- moments, right? If you have the 45 and 46 and you play it wrong, then that could potentially be a frustrating moment. But I think the difference is the mind is, it's the simplicity of the mind. It's the, oh, oh, well, we got it wrong. Now keep playing. We lost a life. Keep moving on. Whereas here, if you get it wrong, it can mess you up for two or three rounds. You could be somewhere completely wrong and lose like literally all your progress from the last two or three rounds that you've made and you go exactly backwards and maybe even worse than that, you knock over a vase or something else. And like, now you're even further behind than you were. So I think the frustrating moments here are more frustrating. And I don't know if it's just the simplicity of it. Like with the mind, when I did something smart, I felt clever when I did something smart here. I was like, well, yeah, of course we needed to do something smart because a puzzle doesn't seem that hard. But when you guys aren't on the same page or when you just don't have the right cards, it gets very frustrating for me. So for me, it is less of a recommend. Although, as I said, all the points are good here. But if you're someone that tends to get frustrated by these kinds of games, I think this doesn't not only doesn't do anything to help with that, but it is more frustrating for me than any of these games that I've played before in the past. And I'm not exactly sure why. But I just haven't had good experiences with this one, even though I think the mechanics are great. And I think if you've got the right group, it'll be a super fun game for them. All right. So there you go. I think a nice uh, coverage of the potential love and or, you know, frustration with the game. I do want to say I haven't said this to you yet, Peter. I was literally an hour before this recording figuring out my uh, fan made solo variant for Quirky Circuits. And I think I pretty much got it. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I'll probably, if it, (laughs) here's how it'll work. If you see a video one or two days after this podcast of me playing the game solo to show off my variant, then it went well. If you don't, then it crashed and burned somewhere along the way. Well, I'm guessing you're going to put some cards face down. Yeah, so, I mean, I'll I'll summarize it. I basically play a two-player game with all the rules intact, and uh, I can play face-down cards from my uh, partner's hand, But uh, using the same battery track, I have uh, programming points, and I can spend those to switch cards or remove cards from the program once everything's revealed. Oh, that's going way more complex than I thought. I thought you were just going to say, put some random cards face down every once in a while. Well, I I tried that, and it was impossible. (laughs) Okay. 
So at some point I was like, it's, you know, you cannot simulate the intelligence of another player that actually knows what the heck they're doing. So I needed to have some second resource that you could use. So right now, I mean, so far it's working amazingly. I just have to figure out like what the right number of resource points are and like how much things cost. And then, uh, yeah, it should be good to go. Well, apparently you can simulate my intelligence in the game because I frustrate everyone around me every time I play it. So I don't know. No, I mean, I, I'm doing way better than I did when playing with you. So everything is wonderful. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I don't think you could do worse. Yeah, I, I do not do well at this game, even though I've played it quite a bit. You know, it's just one of those things that I think it's so obvious what we need to do. And nobody else at the table is on the same page with me or even one person's off on that thought and forget it. Then the whole thing's off. Well, yeah, so it is, uh, it's kind of like Magic Maze, another one of my favorite games. It can also be very frustrating, and I made a solo variant for that. I just like to do that for these games that are a little bit tougher to get to the table with multiple people. So if you're into the idea of this game, but you're not sure if your group will like it, uh, hey, see if a video pops up for me, and if it does, then try the solo play. There you go. (laughs) Nice. No, and I do think a lot of people will like it. Well, and I will say, just anecdotally, Peter is the only person I've played with that did not enjoy it, and Jerry, and it was in the same group playing. Every other group I've played it with has enjoyed it. Now, that's only like three other groups, but, you know, still. I, yeah, I, I definitely recommend teaching it with everything face up. I, I do that for all these games. Magic Maze, I teach with no timer, no limiting communication. I guess the mind is the only one I don't because it just seems dumb. <laughs> well, <laughs> sure. with the <laughs> like, well, let's play with our cards teach. face up, guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can we count to 100? Yes, you can. Good job. Thanks. <laughs> All right, so uh, now we're going to get into our design discussion, which is the idea of including more modes, more content. And this is not like Quirky Circuits is not the poster child of this because they have different robots, but it's still the same core gameplay. But I'm thinking games that have competitive and co-op in the box. I'm thinking games that have like an arena mode and a dungeon crawling campaign mode. That's the kind of stuff I'm looking at here. So, uh... Peter, what are your thoughts when you first hear about a game? <laughs> this is what I want to start with, because I know we have uh, strong thoughts on this. What are your first thoughts when you hear about the game, a game and you see that it says it can play competitive and co-op and solo? So I've played two of these games quite a bit recently, actually. Mage Knight and Dungeon Alliance, both of which are you know to- touted having this. And I'll be honest, my first thought is always, yeah, right. How does this game play best? Because they clearly design it one way. And for Dungeon Alliance, you could clearly tell that game was made to play competitively. And they kind of threw in the solo and co-op mode. And with some of the expansions, they do a better job of defining clear goals. But at first, it was like, okay, for the competitive game, whoever has the highest score at the end wins. And for the cooperative game, your score is what it is at the end. There's not even, like, thresholds for, like, (laughs) whether you do well or not. It's just, I guess, you're trying to beat your own score. Like, I don't know. So uh, they definitely add things like quests that that change that up a bit. But, yeah, no, in the base game, it's just like, all right, so what's your score? I'm like, wait, what? How is that? What? (laughs) That doesn't even make sense. So it's literally the same game, except there is uh, no objective. So great. (laughs) So yes, no, when I first see that, I think, okay, how was this game designed? And I'll be honest, I think 99% of the time it was designed to be competitive and then they threw in the co-op variant. And so I've had not such great experiences, although I'll say Dungeon Alliance, I've had a lot of fun with lately, especially as you get into the story cards and things. And Mage Knight, obviously, people like it more solo than they like it, you know, with the other modes. So I do think it can be done well, but I still think one mode is going to shine. And for us co-op gamers, unfortunately, I don't think it's usually our mode. Now, I guess, is it a bad thing for a company or a designer to do this? Like, if your game's going to be a 9 one way and a 6 or a 7 the other way... It is still increased value, and it does make it easier to get the game to the table if you have the extra modes, right? Like, do you think it's a logical thing for publishers to be doing this? I mean, obviously it's logical. You're increasing your potential fan base, although I do think you'll turn people away. Yeah. I wish they would do something else, which I doubt anybody will ever do. It's like a competitive game with a co-op mode. So you at least know that it was designed as a competitive game and the co-op mode was just kind of thrown in. And maybe they do do that. And, you know, maybe that is usually the way I see it. And the one that drives me crazy even more is the semi-co-op games. That it's like, oh, you can play completely co-op if you want, like Nemesis and Dead of Winter. It's like, well, wait a minute. How is it balanced then? Was it balanced for semi-co-op? Because it's very different if someone's like fighting against you. It's like trying to play Battlestar Galactica completely co-op. That wouldn't Which work. They, they, they have a variant for that, I think. 
Well, I mean, if they do something to increase the difficulty, okay. But these two games don't have that at all. Neither Nemesis or Dead of Winter in their co-op mode have anything different from the players except you don't put the trader cards in. Well, then is it way too hard semi-co-op or is it way too easy co-op? Like if there's no scaling of difficulty between those two modes, clearly you're going to either always lose when you have a hidden trader or you're always going to win when you don't have one. Like it's got to be balanced toward one or the other. And to think that you could just take the trader out and it would be balanced just fine is ridiculous. Because, like, you literally have a whole person, a quarter of the table, working against you. And when you don't have that, then how could that be balanced as a co-op game? It just doesn't make sense to me at all. Yeah, and I think I think a pitfall that a lot of these uh, companies fall into or designers fall into when trying to do this stuff, especially when they start competitive, is a lot of the games we're talking about have either a score-based victory, like who can get the highest score, or they have a timer-based victory, but where the players create the pace. Like, I'm thinking of something like uh, Runebound, 3rd Edition, you know, which is competitive in its base, but can become cooperative. In Runebound Competitive, it's not a strict timer. The players determine the timer by their risk-reward choices. Like, especially, uh, you know, actually, Runebound 2nd Edition is a better example. If you wanted to start fighting yellow enemies and blue enemies and God help you red enemies earlier than maybe you should have and that paid off, you would drastically increase the tempo of the game. If you got your butt kicked and had to like recover for a round or two, then you would slow down the tempo of the game. And Runebound 2nd Edition, the official solo, it's been years, so maybe I have this wrong, but I think it was just like literally counting down Doom tokens. It was the same number of turns. And they took what was a player-driven, tempo-based system and turned it into a totally dull, formulaic thing. And I don't think that works, really. Like, it might be okay if the core gameplay is fun, just having a timer can be okay. Uh, Like, clearly, Quirky Circuits, I don't mind the fact that you basically just have a timer. But when, when the competitive has the timer determined by the players, as most games do, I don't know, I think you should try something to... Like, like even games that have randomizers for the timer, when they switch to uh, co-op or solo, you know, like, suddenly it's shorter, suddenly it's longer. It, it feels random, it feels swingy, but at least it changes the feel of the game. Yeah, I think you and I are in the same boat here. We get frustrated when games just try to throw on a co-op mode to make it sell better or whatever else. And it feels like that's what some of these games are doing. I mean, games like Dungeon Alliance, for an example, when you tell me the main objective of the game is to get the highest score you can, and you don't even give me a chart to tell me whether I'm in the realm of good or bad, it's like, I mean, if you watch Colin's playthrough, because I did this just to kind of help me learn the rules of the game, I watched his playthrough, and at the end, he's like, yeah, I got 29 points. I don't know if that's good or not, but I had fun. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, it's true. Like, that's how you feel the first time you play that game. It's like, well, I had fun doing everything, but I have no idea what this score means. Like, it it literally means nothing to me. (laughs) So it's, it's... You know, we've said it before, you have to have the end of the game's got to be the most exciting part of the game. It's got to be this huge climax at the end, and you want to leave people feeling positive. And when you've had fun playing a game, and it just ends on something like that, it's just frustrating. I mean, all you have to do is add a chart in the back and say, greatest warrior of all time if you get 40 points, and, you know, worst warrior ever if you're under 10 points. You know what I mean? You just just play it a couple times and you'll know what the scores should be, right? Like, I mean, how, how hard is that for a designer to play with a couple different people and what are the highest scores you're seeing and what are the lowest scores you're seeing? And just put a chart in there just so people have an idea of how good they did or not. So that's, the, that's part of what frustrates me when I see these co-op modes in games that aren't meant for them is that sometimes it feels like they don't even try. Now, with all that negativity out there, Let's talk about some games that do this well, and not just kind of putting in competitive and solo, but also back to Quirky Circuits, games that like sort of include different ways to play the game, even if it maintains the co-op or solo like nature of the game. Uh, So what's one you think of, Peter, that does it well? Sure. I mean, I'll go back to Dungeon Alliance here. I think the base game didn't do it well until you added in the quests, but I've had a ton of fun playing with the story mode expansions where you've got like these quests and it's like you do a four mission campaign and each part of the campaign has an individual goal. So as much fun as I make of that game for its base mode, I really think it does a good job doing it 
in the long term. Games like Scythe, I know one of your favorites, takes a game that is a definitely very heavily competitive game. All the games with the Automa, I think, do a great job of turning those competitive games into good solo games. Yeah, but I would actually stick with the Dungeon Alliance example more because that's like truly, it sounds like with the adventure packs that improve the game, truly changing the experience for solo versus competitive. Whereas Scythe, I love it, but an Automa is just replicating another player in some way. So I'm basically still playing competitive. So one I'll throw out there, I know, you know, it's it's divisive and I I fully accept that. I love it, but not everyone will, is uh, Cloudspire. I think the way Cloudspire plays solo and co-op is very different than competitive with these kind of more puzzly scenarios. But I love both those modes, and for me, that game has drastically more value with uh, those varied ways of playing than just, like, the basic competitive or just basic solo, if that's all the game offered. Well, and I think games that have either transformed themselves or added extra modes, one of which you just played online, Imperial Assault, but even going back further is Descent, 2nd Edition. That game was completely designed to be a one-versus-many game, And you and I both thoroughly enjoyed the app-based co-op version of that game. So it wasn't intended to be that way originally, but I think they did a really good job. I mean, it was one of your top games the year it came out, and I still think you like Descent better than you like Imperial Assault. I think it did a really good job of turning a competitive game, what was a competitive game, into co-op. Yeah, I think that's it. I think it's the new elements. And again, Quirky Circuits does not fit this at all, but... The idea that, like, I am doing different robots doing completely different things elevates that game to quite a large extent, you know? Sure, and I mean, there are games that have failed at thinking competitively. There was a game called Stonehenge. I don't know if you remember that one. No, I don't think I ever played that. I never played it, but literally it was, like, a bunch of random components, like these domino-shaped pieces, like, that you could put together to build something like Stonehenge. It came with dice, pawns, and there's, like, Many games in one box, right? It was like you could play like 10 games with this and they got the best designers of the age to contribute each with their own game ideas. So it's used the standard set of components to play all these different games. And as you can probably guess, when you're forced into that much of a constraint, you know, they had cards, they had dice, but the cards were just numbered one to 10 or whatever else in four different suits. So when you're limited that much, sometimes I think it's hard, even though there's lots of quote unquote value in things like that or games like 504, same kind of thing, 504 different games in the box, right? Are any of them good? I don't know. And <laughs> like, the problem is sometimes with these things is if you play the stinker first, that is your thoughts on the game. And I think maybe that's where game publishers get themselves in trouble. And I'll, I'll give an example here. Salvation Road, that game plays one to eight people, but we put one to four on the box. I don't even think we put with variant up to eight people on the box when you open it and read the rules, you see you can play with up to eight people, but we knew that wasn't the ideal way to play the game. And so what we put on the box was one to four players because that is the ideal count for the game. I think people need to sell games the way that they are the ideal way to play it. And then if you're playing one of these variants, just know you're playing a variant and it's probably not going to be as good as the base game. And that way, if you have a bad experience, you know it was probably because it's a variant and don't blame the core system itself. I think another classic example of kind of getting more value out of uh, specifically co-op games is uh, dungeon crawlers that have one-off modes. I think uh, Madara did this very well with their kind of, uh, I forget what they're called, like dungeon crawls or dungeon descents where it's a one to three like scenario little uh, combo, but you don't have to do the entire huge campaign with all the story. Ultra Quest, I've only played the base mode where it's one-off dungeons, but they have like this whole campaign book that you can kind of play with there. Our design, Spare Parts, we've designed both a full campaign system, but also like a both a competitive and a cooperative arena mode. Oh, we said competitive and co-op. One of them must be bad. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Watch um, out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I think um, it, it almost feels like natural and expected there. And I know another one uh, that Colin covered on the channel recently and enjoyed is, I think it's uh, Arena the Contest, which it's right in the title, is an arena game, but also has a cooperative kind of dungeon crawl mode. So I don't know, I guess you're still increasing the value and some of those are done really well, especially something like Madara, where they literally like create new missions and write text for it. 
or even a Arkham LCG. You've got the one-offs, you've got the campaigns, you can mix the one-offs in the campaigns. It's not really different gameplay, but I just appreciate that they give you different ways to play the games, that they include uh, the rules for doing a single scenario by itself out of a larger campaign if you want to. All that kind of stuff, I guess, is just more value and more control to the gamer. Now, speaking of LCGs then, would you consider something like Marvel Champions this way then? Because you have different bosses that play completely differently, even though the core system is the same. Like, where are we drawing the line here? Yeah, I know. (laughs) And that's why quirky circuits might not fit into, like, the whole discussion we're having. I I don't know. I mean, like, I don't want to include Spirit Island just because they have different spirits you can play as. I want to, like, really include things that are, like, a different mode to play the game. So I wouldn't say Marvel Champions fits that. Although I guess it will once they have this uh, new story mode, depending on how different that actually ends up being. But, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, it it is certainly a, a slippery topic. I mean, clearly we've already ranged pretty wide. It's, it's not laser-focused. Well, no, but I think it's a good conversation to have because I think the ultimate question is, what is the value of this thing? And is it valuable for both designers to work on? Like, I mean, this is not the kind of thing that takes a little bit of time. Taking something that's competitive and turning it into co-op is not going to be a 10-second work. It's not going to come to you in one day and all come together. Well, it, it will, and it'll be terrible, and please don't publish that. <laughs> well, right, and so that's the question. Is it worth investing your time in? Is there value for the publisher? Does the publisher get something out of it if somebody plays one of these suboptimal modes, or do you make sure that the development's in there, that all the modes are great, and so somebody's not going to have a suboptimal experience, and then that gets down to the player level as well? Do you see value in a game you can play cooperatively, competitively, and solo. Because I find, even though they say they have those modes, Mage Knight, I think, is a perfect example. I don't know many people who play co-op, and I don't know anybody that plays that game competitively, right? But that's, you know, the big selling point for it. But it's mostly a solo game. So are people just going to find the right niche for it, and it's going to fall into that niche? I mean, it certainly didn't hurt Mage Knight that it has all those modes in there, but most people end up playing the solo mode from what I've heard anyway. I mean, speaking for us, and specifically against spare parts, the reason we wanted to do our competitive mode is because that's how the game began. It was a competitive arena game until we vastly transformed it to be Absolutely. a campaign. I mean, like, it's, like yeah, I'm not saying like we just pasted it on like some, some campaign mode. The entire game is different. But we still had all these elements we had designed for the arena. We were like, oh, these are still cool. So I think that's okay. I, th- I think that's a better way to do it. Like, in your design process, you saw other cool things and playtesters enjoyed other cool things and you want to bring that to life, too, because of the extra work you've already done. Well, and some people love that mode so much that, you know, well, it's cooler than fighting against each other with giant stompy robots. So that I think that's part of the reason that we threw it back in is so many people were asking for it. It's like, okay, well, we've already done the work for it, so it wouldn't be too hard to throw back in. Now, we've also, though, and, and this is interesting and dives off into a whole different thing. As far as I know, that's going to be an expansion. So if you don't want that content, you don't have to have it. And that's a huge difference. I mean, I'm thinking uh, all the way back to the Reiner Knizia Lord of the Rings game, one of the first co-ops ever, you know, not counting uh, Arkham Horror, the first one and that kind of thing. They had the Sauron expansion that made it a competitive one versus many game, which was trash in my opinion, but (laughs) at least it was an expansion. Sure. Like you you bought that thing knowing that's the mode of play you wanted. They didn't waste your time. Like clearly his vision was co-op and here is his vision. And if you want to try out this other random thing he threw together, feel free. Well, Pandemic did that too. Right. Yeah. Good, good point. I, I think that was also a terrible expansion because that's before people were like <laughs> a fully, fully confident that a co-op game could just be a co-op game. But, you know, it's still if it's an expansion, it's such a different thing. I always worry with these ones that do co-op and competitive mode or like 15 different ways to play the game that their design process is fragmented and things aren't going to turn out as well overall. Whereas if the game just comes out, I mean, they're like, hey, we made this expansion later. It's like, ah, well, who cares? I know you did your best job on the first game. I don't think the expansion is what I need to make it the best experience possible. Part of that comes down to balance. I've said it many times myself. I think balance between competitive and co-op games has to be different. I don't care as much if every card in a deck is perfectly balanced in a co-op game, as long as we know that, you know, that adds to the randomness and we know that's adding to the randomness and swinginess. In a competitive game, if I just get the best card in the game and nobody else has that, 
that bothers me way more in a competitive game than it would in a co-op game. So I think even balancing, and and sometimes, you know, it's the opposite. In a co-op game, I think if all the cards are perfectly balanced, it makes the experience more boring for me. Where, you know, I like a little bit of swinginess in my co-op games just for more variety because you need that randomness or else it is just a straight up puzzle. So I think even balancing those things is very different, whether you're looking for a co-op experience versus competitive experience. All right. So pretty wide ranging discussion today, but hope you got something out of it. Thank you all for listening. Continue to stay safe and healthy and we'll all get through this together. And we'll be seeing you next week for another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week with another Top 5 list. Test, test, test. Hello, hello. My third's a little weird. Well, see how it yeah, goes. mine's a little weird, too. I don't know what's going on with thirds tonight. Maybe there's like a lot of allergens in the air or something. Yeah, I've definitely been sneezing like crazy. It's great when you're walking down the street and like nobody will come within 50 feet of you. Talk yeah. about a... Uh, <laughs> Talk about a good way to keep people clear. Social distancing in full effect. Ha, it's you! <laughs> uh, that's funny, man. Quirky circuit some... T- quirky circuit some... Quirky circuit somewhat filts the... Bleeping ship gas. <laughs> awesome. But before we... G- oh, sorry. That's it. <laughs> to it. Hold on a second. Crud. All right. I didn't lose my recording. Let me turn off my sleep timer. Sorry. Oh, dude. Okay. I looked over. My screen was blank. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> so are you sure you didn't like are you you at, to start back what, over what there time at that are you point? At? I am at 15.33. Yep. That's where I'm. Cool. Hey, Mike. Yeah. I played two straights and a right card. That is not what I wanted. They were both backwards. I'm sorry. I messed it all up. <laughs> that, that, that is literally, except, except for Peter apologizing, that is literally the text of, it's a transcript of our playing. <laughs> Quirky circuits. I thought you turned it's, right. Why did you turn left? What? Why are we facing a wall now? Yeah, yeah there, there you go. That, that, that's more accurate. <laughs>